Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about up to 25% off grocery store prices. Oh, really? What's wrong with paying full price, huh? No, sir. I would not join BJ's Wholesale Club. Let's agree to disagree, Frank. Say you do want to sign up now to get a $40 BJ's digital gift card. Join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in South Fayette. Visit BJ's.com slash South Fayette or the BJ's Membership Center at Newbury Market. Offer valid for a limited time. Addiction is a disease that impacts all of us. Whether you, your neighbor, friend, or family member is struggling, everyone feels the pain of addiction. Recovery Centers of America, Monroeville, wants you to know that addiction treatment works and recovery is possible. Call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW for help for yourself or a loved one. Recovery Centers of America have helped thousands of patients across the United States and here in Western Pennsylvania start a better, healthier way of life through their evidence-based inpatient and outpatient treatment programs. The caring team of physicians and clinicians at Recovery Centers of America see their patients as so much more than their addiction and are deeply committed to providing expert care with heart. Recovery Centers of America knows that every day in active addiction is a day in isolation, which is why they admit new patients 24-7 year-round. Don't wait. Make the call that can change everything. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now. It was just to have conversations with people about this because I felt so alone and so just talking to people who are in similar situations, but I also saw this victimhood culture that I really just detest and rage against because I find it empty and it leads you nowhere. This lie, this is another lie in our culture that's so destructive that, okay, maybe you are a victim of something that does not mean you have to embrace this entire victimhood persona, although now it's been monetized. So there's a lot of incentive to embrace this. And at the end of the day, it leaves you empty. Just it's emptiness at the end. And I'm not sure enough people are kind of playing that tape forward and asking themselves, well, where does this lead me ultimately? This this philosophy of life. It's it's horrible. It's laughable to me that this is something that this is where we are as a country, that this is something we've embraced as some kind of virtue. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest is Bridget Fedesi. Bridget is a writer, comedian, and popular podcaster and YouTuber. She was a longtime contributor to Playboy magazine, writing the Playboy advisor column, as well as the sex and dating column on the digital site. She's also contributed to places like The Federalist, The Spectator, and TheAtlantic.com. She's the host of an audio podcast, Walk-Ins Welcome, as well as the YouTube show Dumpster Fire, where she analyzes, rants about, and often brings uniquely astute insights to the news and what shouldn't be news of the day. She also runs what she calls a digital community at fetacy.com. In this conversation, which was sparked by recent remarks from the comedian Sarah Silverman, Bridget and I talk about what's happened to comedy in the age of hypersensitivity, much of it manufactured, why this seems so manufactured to us, and what it's like to watch entertainers and other public figures begin to unpeel themselves from the Trump outrage machine. She also talks about what she learned about men and women from writing for Playboy and how she thinks overcoming addiction and spending time in 12-step programs has given her a uniquely keen nose for the cultural hypocrisy of the moment. A quick note, I had another long conversation with Bridget about a year and a half ago at her home in Los Angeles. That one delves into her background and gets quite personal, and it's available on this show's Patreon page to mid-tier and higher-level subscribers. You can go to patreon.com slash the unspeakable to sign up and listen. One final note, and then I promise I'll stop talking. In the interview you're about to hear, Bridget makes a reference to the author and activist Ayan Hersi Ali. She's talking about a recent interview she did with Ali on her Walk-Ins Welcome podcast. You can Google it and find it. And with that, here's my interview with Bridget Fetisi. Bridget Fetisi, welcome to The Unspeakable. Thank you for having me. Um, so this was a, kind of a, an impromptu uh, discussion. I had the idea 
over the weekend. I don't even know if it was an idea. I had like a craving to talk with you. Um, <laughs> I love that. I know, catch up I with my friends. It, it's not normally how I do this podcast. Um, I'm usually like not formal, but I, you know, I try to like try to like read a bunch of stuff and have like a bunch of set questions, which I do not have uh, with you today. I'm glad your dog is barking because my dog's probably going to start start oh barking. God. No, it's Sorry. good. No, I want to have like one day I'm going to have a podcast where it's just my dog barking and the or guests just dog dogs barking. barking. Yeah. I wanted to talk to you all weekend because, uh, or maybe I, one of these, the last couple of days, Sarah Silverman, uh, posted a video from her podcast, I guess, where she was like having some kind of meltdown about identity politics and, you know, quote unquote, cancel culture, um, where it was as if she had just realized that this was a problem. And, (laughs) and you tweeted uh, something about this. And then I retweeted your tweet. And um, a lot of people seemed to, it resonated with them. Um, and I was trying to like take the high road and, you know, be like, oh, it's, it's, this was brave of her. You were the first to say it's brave of her to, um, you know, start talking this way, given that she's a Hollywood celebrity, she has a lot to lose. And I felt the same, but then you also said that you felt bittersweet about it because like, <laughs> you've been saying this stuff for several years now and there are penalties to be paid for that. And yeah. I feel similarly. And so I kind of felt a little bitter slash sweet yeah. <laughs> about it. So anyway, let's talk about that. Yeah, I think it's, I I definitely try to take the high road and I don't always succeed. And there, I, I can only imagine how people even like Dave Rubin must feel in regards to this, who, you know, people who've been saying this. It's funny, my editor emailed me and he was like, I'm glad she realized what we realized in 2013, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Just the this culture war was kind of coming for a while. And even when I was a playboy bef- pre-Trump, before Trump, there was a toxic, insidious, terrifying authoritarian bent that I was not aware of until I, until I stumbled into the culture wars. And inserted myself in the very online people. Right. So I wasn't just, I wasn't aware of this just for sake of being blacked out, for sake of the fact that I was just waiting tables. I wasn't really spending as much time online. And I didn't know anything that had been taught in the academies and institutions that these kids coming into the workforce were. Yeah. We're using all this language I had never even heard. <laughs> so you came to people's right. You came to people's attention uh, in terms of this subject in uh, August of 2019 with your piece, "The Battle Cry of the Politically Homeless." Is that right? Was that sort of your first shot over the bow? Not really. I think I feel like that was pretty late. I I, I did um, Ben Shapiro's election special in 2018. Okay. That was the first media hit I ever did. I've been pretty mouthy on Twitter up to that point. Uh, so how did people know that you were into this? I think I started mouthing off around 2015, 2016. And I started not knowing at all who some of these publications were. I started writing. I wrote a piece about high heel hypocrisy, just about the feminism that calls for not judging a woman for what she's wearing and all of the talk around Hillary and how there was so much talk about what she wore and her hair and that was sexist. And then the minute Melania came on the scene, everybody was judging her for her heels and her, her, that seemed to be okay. So I just wrote about that kind of hypocrisy for the Federalists. And I immediately, I didn't know, I didn't know anything. And people were like, uh, Federalist, unfollowing you, unsubscribing from your Patreon. I had a Patreon, but I was just posting. I was basically doing writing prompts at a little community, posting tasteful nudes at a higher, you know, level. I was writing from tasteful nudes to the Federalist. Wait, okay, but wait. So, but you were like a performer. How were you identifying in the world? Were you like a comedian? Were you an entertainer? Yeah, I just said comedian and writer. That was really... And then at the time, I was the Playboy advisor. So there was some 
I I did have a enormous institution behind me that was underutilizing me. <laughs> and it was fun to be able to write for them, but it was a very strange time to be writing at Playboy. You're talking about Playboy. You're talking about yeah. Playboy. Yeah. Just at Playboy because I started writing for them in 2015, which, mind you, is p- pretty much the height of the Me Too stuff. It is really ramping up. And it started in 2013, but it really was gaining a lot of steam. Playboy decided to go non-nude for a minute, basically when I started working there. And so it was just a very strange time really? at Playboy. What was yeah, they about? did. They just were trying something different, but it didn't work. And then um, Cooper came back, the son, and he reinstated the nudity. And there was a lot of turnover. Even in the time that I was there, there was just a lot of turnover. And there. And what were you supposed to be writing for them? So I, I had a monthly column and I wrote two men. I mean, I wrote about I wrote about balding. I wrote about pre I wrote about I wrote about everything. I wrote about men grieving. I wrote about um, sometimes it was a little more navel gazy. And sometimes I would interview I would cu- put a call out on Twitter and get hundreds of responses from people in regards to any kind of topic. And that was really what was shocking to me was how eager men were to, I was like, oh, apparently no one is asking men how they're doing because they're writing me 2000 word essays when I'm asking them for feedback on how they feel about um, premature ejaculation or how they feel about the dating world right now. So I did about, I did a column a week for over a year online called just the tip it's all gone now which is tragic to me but oh, it's not even available in the there's archives there's like three or four of them now you can't find them anywhere they they disappeared when they went onto a new server and they said they were going going to reinstate them but they just never did so oh my gosh do you have copies so, of them yourself the, i do i have physical we you know i had a weird gut instinct that this was about to happen to me because i had started being like i said a little bit more honest on twitter about making fun of the left it wasn't even honesty i was just the, the, it's such low hanging fruit as a comedian right the stuff that the left does on the, on the very far left i it's just so bananas i don't know how you can't make fun of it it's so nonsensical illogical and contradictory in so many ways. So like what comes to mind when you, when you say that, like what were the first kinds of examples that you noticed? Some of the things um, that I would make fun of. One of the things that went viral, for example, really early was the body positivity movement. So they, I'm all for it. This is the, the issue I have with kind of the tenets of wokeism is that in, in many of them, there are seeds of ideas that I can get behind. It's just always taken too far, almost comically too far. And the body positivity movement, they put a woman on the cover of Cosmopolitan. And I just jokingly was like, hey, I'm an average 40 year old. Where's my representation? You know, I, I, Mm -hmm. (laughs) this is, this is not fair. I want to be a model. Yeah. Body positivity doesn't seem to be about getting older for some reason. And it doesn't seem to be about being average. It's, it's about truly radical and radically average. We, we, I was like, so what we went from being a real skinny Coke addict who doesn't eat to like morbidly obese. (laughs) Why couldn't we just get somebody like me, like an average, you know? But that's the, per- Bridget, that's the perfect metaphor for the cultural climate. Like yeah. there's only two lanes. There are <laughs> only, two, only lanes two lanes and they're lanes. both extreme. And they're not the, the general average that, you know, most people are dealing with. It's just. Right. I do feel like there's a momentum shift. I see it a lot. I, so Sarah Silverman is a good example of that momentum shift, whether it's just a, her getting stoned and having a moment of, you know, right. clarity that doesn't last. I, I guarantee she's probably had six struggle sessions since that thing went viral. I know. Yeah, um, I wondered about that. Well, let's talk about that clip because that's what um, prompted me to to get in touch with you. So 
Um, this was from her podcast. Do you know? Are did you see the whole thing by any chance, or what no, do you know? I about saw it? that clip and I was just laughing hysterically be, for many reasons. Because so to go back quickly, I I was doing comedy and I noticed this with all my comedian friends, and I was starting to feel like I couldn't. I noticed I was self censoring, and I asked myself why. At, at, particularly as a comedian. And then I've, I saw people like Sarah Silverman and um, Seth MacFarlane, people who I really had looked up to in comedy, kind of walking things back, apologizing, doing these public mea culpas. I was like, you guys made millions, in Seth's case, billions of dollars saying whatever you wanted. And now you're pulling the ladder up behind you and you are acting like nobody else can do this. It was infuriating. Sarah Silverman is somebody I wrote about in my book. And I, I specifically talked about like seeing an interview with her in The Guardian in 2017, where she talks about how she regrets making certain jokes. Like right. the, the, And when I saw the headline, the headline was something like, uh, there are jokes I made 15 years ago that I absolutely would not make today. And I was like, oh, I'm so excited because she's going to be talking about how, you know, you can't, you, you can't make these kinds of like extremely, um, you, you can't traffic in irony uh, the way you can now. Like you can't make her tasteless jokes uh, now. Oh, the okay, I thought that's what she was going right. to say. Okay. And then it turns out to be like this total like walk back like she she right. says there are jokes i made 15 years ago that i absolutely would not make today because i am less ignorant than i was right. <laughs> i know more now than i did i change with more information now just again for listeners who might not be familiar this was like a typical sarah silverman joke like like her persona was of a totally clueless person right like right. it was persona humor so you know she would say <laughs> You know, she came up in in the mid 2000s. She had a bit where she was describing getting an HIV test and asked if she had had a blood transfusion in the 80s. And she mistakenly hears 80s as Haiti. I love this bit. And she says, I used to live there. (laughs) And when she says, when they asked how long she lived there, she said, I don't remember. I was doing a lot of heroin at the time. (laughs) And she says, if we can put a man on the moon, we can put a man with AIDS on the moon. And then someday we can put everyone with AIDS on the moon. Like, I don't know. Maybe you have to be just some awful Gen Xer to think that's hilarious. But, no, um, no. My, friend, my friend Adrian Appalucci is making jokes like this. She's just not well known, but she should be. That woman hit every third rail in her recent special Baby Skeletons. I mean, she went after she was making fun of school shootings, people with missing children, just the darkest most amazingly inappropriate humor. It was so refreshing to hear a woman just going for it like that, just fearlessly making fun of everything. Yeah. I mean, I have noticed a few times I've been in comedy clubs over the last couple of years, obviously not in the last year, but years prior. That was where really edgy, interesting stuff was being done. Like the comics in the clubs were really not holding back. You would see people who would have been on... Uh, you know, on network TV the previous week being completely milk toast, and they were like a totally different person in the in the club. So I it, it is there. But I mean, yeah, it is amazing. I was I, I wondered a few years ago why I hadn't watched like late night comedy. I hadn't watched like The Tonight Show or, you know, I, I had not watched any of that stuff in years. And it's because it's like not funny anymore. Right. It's right. Completely not. <laughs> right. Clapter. Yeah. Yes, yes. So Sarah, I just felt abandoned and I get it. I get it. There's a lot of pressure. I understand. Chelsea Handler is another one who's gone all in after making a lot of money being a mean girl. And I I don't want to take agency away from people. They're allowed to do self-reflection. But like Sarah was doing things like posting it was like a very common sign that electricians or gas people have to spray on the ground. And she she was so t- deranged during the Trump years that she posted it and was like, oh, now there are swastikas just on the ground. And everybody was like, you're a moron and you've lost your mind. It was just from like the gas company. <laughs> 
That's, that's hilarious. See, and the thing is, she could have worked that into an amazing bit. If, yeah, like, but her, her old just, self, I know her old self could have like really done something with that. So they started taking themselves too seriously and their platform too seriously and feeling like they had to educate themselves and educate everybody else. And it's like, you're a clown. <laughs> you're, you but are. There's currency. The thing is, clown. though, like there's currency in that. We've seen so many people, whether it's comedians or writers or actors, like, People across genres have stood to benefit professionally, financially, just in terms of their visibility if they attach themselves to hashtag resistance. Like that was a very savvy career move. Well, the cynic in me thinks that this is just the people now that Trump is gone and they're coming out of their fog. And I these are the kinds of things I post in my fetacy.com community that I don't post publicly. But I was like, the cynic in me is this is just capitalism winning. These comedians are seeing guys like Andrew Schultz and Tim Dillon, who are very publicly making upwards of $100,000 a month on their Patreons and going, I want some of that action. Mm. I'm, I'm sure they're seeing this. I'm sure they're looking at the rise of these young guys who are not afraid to make jokes about anything like they used to be. And wondering what happened <laughs> to their right. own career. Right. So, yeah. So Sarah Silverman in her in this little clip that we were tweeting about, she was talking about righteousness porn. I don't know if she coined that uh, term, but I, I like it. Uh, and, she, you know, she says, I've been thinking about this a lot, just in general. And again, this is what like drove me crazy. It's like, really, you've been thinking about it a lot? Like what, for six years, like I have? Um, She says, I've been thinking about this a lot. I just don't know that I want to be associated with any party. She means oh political my God. party. I seriously wanted to like kill myself. I, <laughs> my initial reaction is like, I'm going to kill myself because now Sarah's going to pivot into this freaking lane and because she's a brand name, everyone will be like, you're so brave, which is what people were saying. I'm like, you're not fucking brave. You stand to lose nothing right now for saying this at all. Really, you're kind of brave. And that's where I have to come back from from my like own just feelings of rage. And you're an absolute coward is that it still does take courage for her to say this because there are there is still so much you know, this climate still exists. Like I, like I said on a tweet, like we all, we do need all hands on deck because this, whatever creeping thing on the left is, is so insidious and toxic and corrosive and will take down our entire country if we let it just spread without any pushback. Yeah. So, but what made you sad. I don't know if I felt sad. I I really, I hated this in myself. I I had this moment where I was like, oh, screw you. Like I, you know, we've been here. We've been saying this. We've had professional doors closed to us. We've lost friends. We've, we've suffered consequences. And I don't mean, I am in no way saying that I've been canceled. I certainly have not been. Um, And this is not like to go on some, you know, not a victim. Lament, not a victim. Yeah. Hashtag survivor though. Sur- no. <laughs> Weird survivor. I don't know. Uh, but I mean, it is, but it's like irritating, right? Um, I, I was joking about this on Dumpster Fire this week because I have this ongoing, one of the kind of persona bits that I love leaning into is faux outrage. Although it's based in that, first feeling of outrage that I often can talk myself down off the ledge. But we have this ongoing bit where I'm like, where are my accolades? <laughs> you know, it's, right, like, right. it's like, and I was joking about this yesterday on Twitter. Can somebody please cancel me so I can make, you know, get rich? Because that seems to be the way that people get notoriety, followers on Patreon. I know we sort of missed the boat. I know we idiots. haven't been canceled, but what did we do wrong? Were we just ahead of our time? I don't know. Maybe I, 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 I always try to stay nuanced and compassionate. And I think that's my problem. (laughs) Me too. That's why I I don't know if you've seen my new brand, Nuanced AF. (laughs) I don't know if you've seen my new brand. I'm just going to start throwing bombs out there like (laughs) CandaceOwens.com. Oh, that's good. 
That's yeah. all one word. I'm just going to start throwing <laughs> bombs out word. there like Candace Owens. <laughs> that's good. That's good. I don't know if that's going to fit on a mug because no. nuanced, nuanced AF, nuanced <laughs> as fuck is my brand. And uh, yeah, I have it on mugs and t-shirts and baby onesies because oh, nothing's nice. more nuanced than a baby. But I no, had babies someone say- are racist now, Megan. <laughs> I know, but this is, is going to be the um, sort of antipode to woke baby. This is going to be nuanced baby. And nuanced baby already. I'm going to make a onesie that just says racist AF. <laughs> <laughs> um, wait, but what was I going to say? Oh, then, yeah. So I think where we went wrong is that we tried to split the difference. Again, it's like these two lanes. Like, so we were trying to be nuanced and it bit us in the ass. Well, and because I think we are, um, and I don't know if it's because I'm afraid, if it's because I've asked myself this question. Um, I have a lot of compassion. I think most individuals and I, and as much as it's super fun to group people into giant generalizations, just because for comedy, it's amazing. Um, I try hard to think that most individuals don't really know the theory that is kind of underpinning a lot of this rhetoric. They don't understand that there's a big theory to it. Right. It's just people wanting to be good and people wanting to try and understand things they didn't understand, understand parts of our history that they might not have learned. But then again, those seeds are all great until it gets into like this crazy witchcraft mind reading talk about things like everybody's implicitly biased and you're, you know, you are a victim of whiteness, your own whiteness and all of these terms. Right. And right. now, now you're in crazy town. And I think that I try really hard to give everyone the benefit of the doubt. And the thing about that Sarah Silverman video that was after I got past my like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> uh, moment. I was able to see how much she was struggling with this epiphany and remember what it was like for me when I was having that epiphany. I mean, was she crying? It was almost I like she was like choking up. like she was going to have a breakdown. Yeah. Because <laughs> you do feel like, I, I kind of like, wow, welcome to reality. But also, if you are really focused on, I understand why people were so focused on only getting Trump out and not diluting that power. That was the most common and probably fair criticism that I received is if it, you know, that my not caring, making fun of both sides wasn't helping any side, which right. was the whole Well, point. that we can't afford it. That was, it was, it's the all hands on deck uh, premise. Right. And right. Yeah, I, I and do think that that's a little, that's, that's, oversimplified but yeah th I, that is what people were saying for sure like why are you taking this on now we have an emergency we need everybody on the same page but the fact that everybody was on the same page was itself feeding the emergency right and right and I don't feel like we need every person to all of a sudden come to some kind of epiphany like Sarah did. I just think that someone like her in comedy and in her position, it's great for her to kind of wake up and see these things. And hopefully, I mean, maybe she truly could not see it. People were so blinded by their daily manufactured rage for the orange man that I really don't think they were capable of holding those two thoughts in their brains at the same time. Even if there was some part of them that creepingly knew it. Um, and now that there is that vacuum that he's gone and there is that space to kind of look around you like you just came out of a fog or a trance, you might be suddenly faced with a lot of this stuff where it's never not it's never going to be enough sarah ever there's no no amount of atonement is ever going to be enough i also often wonder if a lot of this is like people's whatever your personal problem is whatever your personal issue or anxiety is we were able to channel channel it through politics so like mm. I, you know people like oh instead of being 
upset if someone instead of someone being upset about their marriage or their relationship with their kid or just you know their body whatever it is whatever it is it was just easier to kind of like take all of that rage and and self-consciousness and self-loathing and doubt and like put it into the political system like right. it's not me it's everything and that's a very natural human instinct right um but like i i just i see i saw so many people like their whatever their bugaboo was it invariably just had to do with some personal issue i'm not saying they didn't care about the political side i'm not saying that at all but like we sort of had you know we each had our sort of way of of experiencing the outrage and i you know for me I'm so allergic to bullshit. Like where I come from, I can't stand all this stuff. You know, I was noticing, you know, this ideology and this, you know, sort of purity policing as early as like 2014, 2015. Yeah. And it's it's not because I was particularly political. It's because I can't stand bullshit. Right. And that happens to be like, you know, we don't need to go into the weeds now, but like I had a mother who was sort of very performative and there was sort of like, you know, there there was a kind of feeling of a lack of authentic <laughs> self. And so it's totally just my mother. Like, it's like, okay, maybe I don't even really have a, any sort of substantive uh, beef with all of this. It's just my own personal problem. And so anyway, I'll just come clean about that. Well, what's funny that you say that is I was talking to my sister and we were, sh she's like, did you watch the Mer Megan and Harry thing? I'm like, no, I can't watch her. She reminds me too much of mom. And <laughs> this is Megan. This is Megan Markle and, uh, and Prince Harry, Harry. not yeah. me, Megan. Yes, the other Megan. Yes, yes, the other Megan. And and so my sister started watching it. She starts text, texting it. She's like, "Oh my god, she's a sociopath!" And she's like, "Oh my god, she's she was just saying all these things about it." And I was like, "How come we see this and other people don't?" And she okay. said, "Because she said because we have mentally ill parents <laughs> because she's a malignant narcissist." Yeah. <laughs> okay. Do you also feel this like way about Mia Farrow? Do you uh, feel this way um, about Mia Farrow? I haven't watched enough of her, but that's my general vibe of her. It's another reason I can't watch her. I can't watch women like that. Anyone who is like that triggers too many issues within me, me from my upbringing. And I'm like, nope, no, no, no. It's irrational. This. I'm obsessed <laughs> with the Woody Allen Mia Farrow case. I mean, I do. I I know a lot about it, and I've pretty much read everything there's to read about it. So I do think like. The, obviously, we don't know what happened. Nobody can ever know. But it seems so clear to me that that Mia Farrow is this like malignant narcissist, borderline personality case, <laughs> extremely manipulative, um, and that that's what's going on Megan? there. Markle? I don't. I actually don't follow the. the I'm not interested in the Royals at all. I've yeah, not really I followed that. Yeah, but yeah. I'm Woody Woody Allen and Mia Farrow to me are the Royals of the United States. So. <laughs> That's, That's so funny. From. Like and only our generation probably even knows who they are. <laughs> like well, talk to anyone below 20 would be like, who? Yeah. <laughs> even like 25. But yeah. yeah, no, I, I, yeah. So I think a lot of it, obviously this is that whole idea I always talk about and have of factory settings. So much of it is just colored by what we were raised with and what we want to see. And I was just like, wow, everyone it's hard to be standing in a place where you're like, wow, you're all, you're all clap. Wow. You're all on board. Okay. You're, oh, wow. She, she's a hero. Okay. All right. I just, and you're the only one who feels like you can't speak your mind because everyone's like, yes, queen. So um, what is it about you? Do you feel like you have some sort of x-ray vision? Like what, what is the sensation when you're looking at something and you're not seeing the thing that like 99.9% .9 of people seem to see? I mean, it's isolating, first of all, and as, as I'm sure you know, and it not in like a victim way. It's just like, oh, here it's we go again. It's <laughs> destabilizing. Yeah. I find it, it's destabilizing. Yeah. <laughs> it's isolating. And yeah, I start, I, I automatically question, I think being a, in recovery too, I don't have this confidence that other people have because I've made so many bad decisions and I question often my own motives and judgment and and brain. Um and but that's I'm, a good sign though. You're self you're self-interrogating. So I'm just good. not I am not I'm highly aware of my ability to lie to myself because I've done it before and done it in bad marriages that I wanted to leave, done it in order to maintain 
drinking longer than I knew I should have been drinking or doing drugs. I mean, there there's a lot of bad things that I've maintained just by completely lying to myself about whatever situation I was in or the reality of the world. And so um, I'm never, I don't ever feel quite stable. You know, I feel, I feel like I'm always questioning my, I, I'm aware that all of this stuff is being filtered through a brain that was, um, had drugs and alcohol being poured into it in my extremely formative years, was in a fight or flight situation for most of my upbringing and never knew what was up or down. I don't I don't necessarily trust my perspective or perception of the world, but I also think being in that state, moving a lot, being a new girl looking in on situations, always being the um kind of outsider looking in, uh it gave me like a superpower. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know where I was able to it's almost like street smarts. Like even sometimes I'll hear journalists talking about other people or people that, and I'm like, wow, you, I was talking with my husband about this. I'm like, how can they not see who this person is? And he's like, cause they weren't drug addicts. (laughs) Well, but I can tell you, I have a different kind of background and I go through the exact same series of thoughts. Like what, what am I missing here? Why am I seeing it this way? Am I crazy? Am I just an asshole? Am I autistic? Like, I sometimes <laughs> wonder if I just don't, if like my logic is sort of, you know, over, it's it's tweaked and my emotions are dulled or something. Mm. Um, so I think there might be like a, like a little bit of a, like a dash of Asperger's in me <laughs> that <laughs> well, is only manifesting that. in this way. You're, you're a spark. We did miss that, like that phase. I always joke. I'm like, I was too old to be diagnosed as autistic. Like I might've been diagnosed as autistic. I had such impulse pulse control when I was a kid. I would just stand up in class and do a cartwheel. Like that's autistic <laughs> behavior. You're now an hmm. autistic kid if you do that. Well, or it's artistic. It's creative. You, or artistic. Artist. Maybe yeah. I'm just expressing myself, but so like, what yeah. are the kinds of things where you where you've like over the last, say, five years where you've been asking yourself, am I crazy? Like like with the Me Too movement, for instance, the like, whole let's, let's last start five there. years I've been asking myself yeah. that. And yeah. yeah, Me Too movement there seemed again, like you said, two lanes. It was you were either all in believe all women or you were an incel <laughs> and you were like you women are lying whores and belong in the kitchen. Um, there seem to be two sides of the generally large, um, just the 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 battle. There, the conversations that I was having privately with women were much more nuanced, right, and interesting, and complex because these situations are often situations in which a man might have power, but a woman was absolutely using her own sexual power in in this situation. I want to go back to something. I'm curious, like, do you have thoughts about the incels? So incels are involuntary celibates. These are, this is like a kind of sprawling, mostly online community of men who like can't get laid and they've decided to sort of politicize this or just, you know, blame women and kind of become misogynist around this. And, you know, most of them are just fairly, um, you know, banal or I don't want to say benign, but, you know, harmless. And then a a tiny, a a tiny amount of them sort of like incite violence. Now, I, I think this is like a really interesting phenomenon that has not been explored with um, the with the necessary depth at all. When you were taking questions for the Playboy column, did you ever have anything come up that might have spoken to this phenomenon, like you know the sort of the sort of conundrum of the like totally socially awkward, just inept boy? No, but I did stumble into it by making fun of Jordan Peterson inadvertently. Okay, so I. I think I tweeted something, just a joke about Jordan Peterson. And then it was like, oh, my God, the I was just mobbed for days by Jordan acolytes and just 
devotees. And I actually like Jordan. You know, I've read some, I've listened to him a lot more because of what happened. I started getting all these emails from men and men in particular who were isolated, playing too many games, watching too much porn, um, felt like they had been left behind or left out, didn't see a path forward to a career and really honestly felt that Jordan had saved their life and put them on a path of meaning and self-worth and just make your bed. Now, we get that in 12-step, you know, but if you're not an alcoholic or an addict or, or, or binge on food or one of the many things that might end you in a 12-step in a program or something like it, or you're not religious, you, you don't have the access to these very simple tools that he gave these men. That is so interesting. Or like and, if you're not in the military, did, right. did the military used to like play this role for a lot of yeah, men? Yeah, I think the military did. Religion did. I, I believe, too, that feminism did sh- change the dynamic a lot. Before feminism, there were all sorts of people basically partnering with people more or less on their level, similar education level, similar socioeconomic status, et cetera. It was also just geographic too. Right. And yes, I mean, there are all sorts of factors, but, you know, feminism came along and basically said to women, you don't have to have a man in order to support yourself. You can earn your own money. You can buy your own real estate. Eventually it was, you can have a baby by yourself. You don't need to have a male partner to really do anything. And so what you had was all these sort of lower status men um, who suddenly didn't have anybody to partner with because back before feminism, there would be, you know, a cohort of women that they would naturally be, be, partnered with. And I don't mean this in any sort of derogatory way. It's just a sort of demographic um, phenomenon. So, so feminism is great for women and great for like, you know, high status men, high earners, highly educated men. And suddenly those guys have tons and tons of women to choose from. uh, And the women are like all competing for the same high status men. (laughs) Right. And that's like made a huge mess, I think. And I think a lot of uh, the sort of rage that we see among younger generations of women, I suspect that some of it has to do with just absolute exasperation with the way these men um, are able to sort of carry on their their dating and sexual lives, um, just because there are so um, so many, many more eligible women than than men. I know, in a weird way, because you. That was another interesting part of the conversation with Ayan Hirsi Ali was that you see one of the most destabilizing things to society can be um, polygamy because it creates the same problem where you have one high status man with multiple women and then lots of other men with no purpose, no one to partner with. Right. You know, these guys who think like, I would love to be in a time when I could have multiple wives always assume they're the one with the multiple wives when in fact, (laughs) it's like, you're probably going to be the guy that is, you know, maybe lucky if you get scraps. And there's this whole idea that, perhaps marriage was something that came about to stabilize even in tribal cultures that practice polygamy in order to stabilize the whole community, they would end up giving away some of their wives or um, sharing the wealth a bit because otherwise it would get extremely restless. And so we have that situation a little bit it's just not quite as obvious. Yes. And the incels, I think, are a huge part of this. I mean, the incels, there are a lot of different versions of incels, as I said earlier, but they are, in a lot of ways, the direct result of women not needing men as much. <laughs> and so what do you do with that? Like, and I, I just, it, I, it frustrates me when kind of like, you know, the the default feminist rhetoric around this is like, well, they just need to get their acts together and like, they need to stop whining. We don't, we don't, they don't deserve sex. Of course not. Nobody is owed sex, but I mean, these guys are like sad cases. 
It's sad for women, though, too. I mean, that is one of the, it, it's really been interesting. This is a conversation that I love because I'm I have a lot. I've done so much reading around this just because being a playboy and then I've been kind of attacked by incels. And my default is always to just try and meet them with compassion. And um, I also do think I know so many women who are just the most amazing women and have the best career, have all the things and they're really dissatisfied and lonely and they're getting older and thought they would have kids. And so we, we are seeing the beginning of the effects of this. And in many ways, it's been super empowering. This is the first year in my life where I did my taxes and I felt truly like a kernel of an acorn sprouting of proud of myself and that I, I made this, you know, I, wow. That's why when I hear people like Candace Owens raging against feminism, like capital F all across the board, I'm like, you don't exist without feminism. <laughs> like, but Show some yeah. respect <laughs> to the women who made you, because I don't, I don't right. know that I agree with modern Define feminism. your terms. Right. right. Just be a little more precise. I think. Right. Yeah. Be a little more like have some respect, woman. Um, like people died for us to be able to sit in front of this microphone and yammer our bums away well, for hours. That was that was a battle worth fighting right there. Many, yeah. M- much blood was shed for podcasts. This podcast. So, thank goodness. <laughs> Bridget, do you consider yourself Generation X? I can't remember how old you are. I do. I was born in 78. I'm on the tail end of it. Okay. I believe I'm technically in that shoulder generation, the Xennial, I think they'll sometimes call it. Oh, I have not heard that term. Yeah. Sh- shoulder generation. It's like the, or the, you know, the, the, the kind of overlap generation. Yeah. So you get um, to have a foot in both. Do you feel more millennial or more I Gen X? I think no, you're, yes. nothing nothing like a millennial. I, I'm, I have no, um, I feel very Gen X. Do you think that we're going to have our moment or are there just too few of us demographically? I don't know. I, I, I don't think it takes that many. I truly am one of those optimistic lunatics who kind of really love that movie, The Power of One, and, and and really thinks that one person can make a difference. And I think a, even a small little generation like Gen X could could be the... It's funny because we, we're the generation, I think, that experienced a lot of divorce. And yeah. I always say that my... Part of the reason that I haven't really gone... Um, I'm always trying to smooth things out and make people get along. That's just a facet of growing up in a dysfunctional family, growing up with parents who have eventually got divorced and being the oldest and trying to uh, keep the peace. So that's my, my default is, isn't to, I can laugh while everybody's fighting, which was also my default when everyone was fighting, even in my childhood and teens. But I also... I get like uncomfortable when people fight. I hate it. Even though it's funny to me, I, I want people to get along, you know, and I want to try and find ways to, to soothe over the, the nastiness. But I don't, you, I don't, you're not afraid of a confrontation on Twitter. No, but I don't like confrontation. I don't like yelling. I don't, I don't want to, I really think too, that a lot of why I've been so, I don't, I like making jokes and it's it's been this balance of like, I don't want to hurt anyone. I don't, I, there was a time when I really felt like I was losing my mind and didn't fully understand what I was up against in terms of the critical theory. Didn't fully understand. I didn't understand anything because I was just running my mouth and then getting reactions. And I remember crying in a bathtub in DC because I just didn't want to hurt populations. I had gone on Gavin McGinnis's show just to talk about drug addiction. Actually, he had me on to talk about how can we help our kids? How can we notice? And I will go talk to anyone about that, particularly people who have an audience more 
right wing because I don't feel like they benefit from that mental health aspect that's kind of imbued in in the cult in the mainstream culture that the right wing media is so constantly consumed with reacting to the culture. They're not necessarily giving as many nurturing um, advice pieces. You know, they're like, where is the red blooded American man going to get advice now? Playboy totally abdicated their duty. And so there's nothing, there's nothing in that space for just Jordan Peterson. Yeah, but he's, yeah, but where's the guy going to go talk about like just dude stuff and sex? <laughs> like, yeah, barstool sports, you know, they they're kind of in that lane. But it, I don't know. It just so what's they still with Playboy. I I haven't looked at it in a long time, but I I heard it's like just totally like they just went all in on Is that what really? Like, yeah, they just they they got it was like a hostile takeover from within, you know, <laughs> just. A, Take it, taken over by young um, feminists and young. Um, I worry about the relationship between the sexes. I worry about our race relations right now. I feel like there's just a fraying. Um, the fabric is kind of tearing apart, and I do think Gen X has some wisdom for for to help us get through this. Well, we thought we were going to be post-racial after Obama. Does that feel mm. naive to you now? Uh, yeah, I guess it does. It's I this this is just a dividing everybody up into their racial categories is is something that puts me in the dark place as I call it. <laughs> it's like when I read letters from people telling me how they're self-censoring, I'm like this puts me in the dark place where I feel we're slipping into um you know, some kind of weird version of communism and everybody is silencing themselves and they're each other. See, I, th- I really want to emphasize this, uh, you know, and we, we need to wind down pretty soon, but I, I don't think I can stress enough to people. I get those letters from, from people all the time too. People telling me that they're self-centering, that they can't talk to their friends, that they can't, you know, talk about their ideas in the break room at work. And you get those letters too, right? Can you tell me like how many, what do they say? I'm going to start reading them online with the people's permission because they're so fascinating. And it's all just everyone's political journey to come full circle. I, and to come back to that Sarah Silverman video, I remember what that was like. I think a lot of people came from the other direction, conservatives who were like looking around and wondering what was happening to their party as people became more invested in Trumpism than conservatism. And you see this on the left, this rift occurring, and it's destabilizing to use your term, your word earlier. It's, it's a completely unsettling and it can feel terrifying. And so I don't, I, I think that even just reading those letters and talking about this and having conversations like this, just the most common thing, and you probably hear this too, is that I'm just so glad to know that I'm not alone. That's all people want to know. And that's all I tell them. You are not alone when I respond to them. You are not alone. There are thousands of people feeling like that, like you are. And I don't tell people to like speak up and lose their jobs because that's not, you know, I, I don't give advice like that. I just tell them to kind of be strong and do what they can, maybe find a small cohort of people that they can feel safe with and honest with. And, um, but yeah, that's when it gets, I'm not sure what's happening. You know, even, even driving, I went and got my computer because on top of everything chaotic going on, my computer's been getting fixed. And I was driving back from downtown Santa Monica, which is like just, so depressing. It's so sad what's happened to these cities. It's tr- it hurts my heart. You mean in terms the homelessness? What are uh, you referring just the to? Board, all the stores boarded up from the summer. Some never coming back. All the businesses that closed. We won't know how many are closed because we're just starting to open up again. All of the homelessness, the mental illness, the people talking to them. It's just it is an it is a different city, and it's going to take decades to get it back to where it was. And it was already sliding before the pandemic and the pandemic accelerated a lot of this, these trends and coming back on the highway, 
there is a sign and it used to say Christopher Columbus something like highway or something like that. And it had been like spray painted over in white. And it was like, you know, indigenous people's, you know, something. And then I I should have taken a picture of it because it was such a representation of what was of what is happening in the country. And a lot of it, I think, is is good to face our past and put things in context. But to throw the entire baby out with the bathwater is distressing to me. You know, free speech and um, just these kind of lies that this country is still systemically racist and that men, black men unarmed are being gunned down by the thousands in the streets. These are these are destructive lies that are tearing apart the fabric of our society. And I will push back against that because I can. I'm in a position to. And what else am I going to do? I'm just like, speak. I'm going to speak until I can't. <laughs> yeah. Well, and actually, this leads me to my to my last question. I wanted to touch on two things. I mean, I, I want to know, I, I want to know what you see your role as being. What do you want to be in this gestalt? What part do you want to play? What kind of sort of service do you want to offer? Because I do see it that way. And I also just on a really practical level, hope you can explain for us what your different projects are, because you are somebody who has done a really good job of keeping up with the new media landscape and, you know, kind of changing with the times, unlike people like me who, who have clung to the old institutions <laughs> to the last possible minute. Uh, so, so tell us what your different uh, platforms and outlets are and, and how you incorporate your message and your thoughts into them. Um, so my, to answer your first question, my role, I don't know. I see myself as very much a trickster, you know, or a jester. I just, I really like having fun. And I, like I always say on Dumpster Fire, which is one of my projects, the YouTube show where we just make fun of the news cycle ourselves. We being my partner, uh, production partner, Maggie, who's also my cousin and my, former roommate, Samantha, we all just take the piss out of each other. We make fun of the left, the right, the center. We make fun of anything. It's just, it, it's a fun way for us to let off steam every week and mock the news cycle and whatever ridiculously insane things happened uh, in the dumpster fire that is our news cycle. And then Walk-In's Welcome is a podcast I started before even Dumpster Fire. And I, it was just to have conversations with people uh, about this because I felt so alone. And so just talking to people who were in similar situations. But I also saw this victimhood culture that I really just detest and rage against because I find it empty and it leads you nowhere. This lie, this is another lie in our culture that's so destructive that okay, maybe you are a victim of something. That does not mean you have to embrace this entire victimhood persona, although now it's been monetized. So there's a lot of incentive to embrace this. And at the end of the day, it leaves you empty. It just is, it's emptiness at the end. And I'm not sure enough people are kind of playing that tape forward and asking themselves, well, where does this lead me ultimately? This this philosophy of life. It's horrible. It's horrible. I, it's laughable to me that this is something that this is where we are as a country, that this is something we've embraced as some kind of virtue, victimhood. Um, it seems almost anti-American to the core. Um, Bridget, thank you so much for speaking with me. I love talking to you always. And thank you for like being, um, being there for me in the beginning. I, um, as I told my uh, listeners on the intro, you were somebody who um, had a long talk with me when I was like doing a demo for this podcast and trying to figure out how to have a podcast. So um, thank you for being there. Of course. And at I that love, time, I love you. And we don't talk enough. And we need to well, keep in better touch. I, I in, feel in like, I feel like I, we, I, I always watch you and listen to you and I, I see you on Twitter, but you're right. It's, it's not enough. So, um, I hope we can do this again and, um, yeah. 
And um, thank you. And keep uh, keep speaking. Keep speaking. <laughs> thank you, thank you for having me. You too. That was my interview with writer, comedian, and podcaster and YouTuber Bridget Fetisi. You can find her at fetisi.com. That's P-H-E-T-A-S-Y. If you want to know how she got that last name and hear a lot more about her, you can subscribe to this show's Patreon page and hear a long conversation I had with Bridget at her home in late 2019. Also on Patreon, you can enjoy all sorts of perks, including discounts on brand new unspeakable podcast merchandise. There are now mugs, shirts, and baby onesies bearing the show's unofficial motto, Nuanced AF. You can purchase them in the Nuance store on this show's website, theunspeakablepodcast.com. You know you're nuanced. Now shout it to the world. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about how you could pay as little as two cents a gallon for gas. Look, when gas prices are this low, we can't complain about gas prices being too high. No, sir. I wouldn't join BJ's Wholesale Club. Hey, thanks, Frank. But if you do want to sign up now to get a $40 BJ's digital gift card, join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in Ross Township. Visit BJ's.com slash Ross Township or the BJ's Membership Center at the Block Northway. Offer valid for a limited time. Are you in excruciating pain brought on by your son, daughter, or spouse suffering from addiction? You are not alone. If you call Recovery Centers of America today at 1-888-RECOVERY, your whole family can begin to recover. At Recovery Centers of America at Monroeville, your loved one will be treated with care by expert addiction professionals, while family programming will give you support and healing so that you can recover as well. RCA accepts insurance, provides transportation, and offers intervention services. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now.